We're going to take some time this morning. We're going to do a little series for the next seven weeks uh, based on our church's seven shared values within Sovereign Grace churches. Uh, if you've joined this church, no doubt you've seen these. They're on our website. Uh, these are the convictions that we have, seven convictions that we have about who we are, what we believe, and how we do church. And so we wanted to do a series and take seven weeks and highlight each one of these and take some time uh, to just inform everybody, make sure that's clear to you, uh, explain to you why these are our values, why we, we value these things so well. Um, the, the list looks like this. The list of seven shared values. First, reform theology. Second, gospel-centered doctrine and preaching. Third, continuationist pneumatology. You have to wait a few weeks to find out what all that means. Make sure you come back for that. Complementarian leadership in the home and in the church. And elder-governed and elder-led churches. Church planting, outreach, and global mission. And finally, united in fellowship mission and governance. So we want to take one week per value, talk about these things, explain them, and, uh, and explain why, why we value these things and how we came to these things. So uh, that's our plan. Uh, having stated this, uh, I just, why, why would we do this? You know, why would we have seven shared values? Why would we, in a sense, draw a line in the sand and say, this is who we are and this is what we believe? Is there any real value in doing that? In fact, isn't that sort of a criticism of the church and isn't this a criticism okay this is how denominations are formed every time there's a disagreement oh we'll break off and start a new denomination is this a good thing and we believe actually that it is helpful and right because the real nature of of really being a disciple of christ if you're going to follow christ it really does involve thinking through okay what does christ teach what has he called us to do and be and to function and you read through the new testament we've got letters to churches churches this is what it looks like to be a part of the body of christ so so there is it's an onus on us to to seek these things out and to the best of our ability understand what the scriptures are calling us to so then out of that comes these seven seven shared values they define us they clarify us they keep us on track they direct us in our mission. They unify us as we're in agreement with these things. So these are good things. These are not tools for pride and self-righteousness. We got it right, and they don't. These are not tools and means to scoff at others who see things differently and operate things differently. There's a phrase I came across some years ago reading some of the Puritans, and the phrase went like this. The Puritans were glad to worship across the street, from another church and what they were saying was that like okay i'm glad there are other churches that do things differently and other churches have convictions that they should be led by the congregation not necessarily the elders okay that's okay i've read their reasoning i'm glad we can worship across the street from them i'm glad that there's the freedom for us to govern and operate and worship the way our convictions lead us to without condemning those who see it differently or looking down on them. So we love for that freedom. We want to be respectful towards others who view things and see things uh, differently, and, and that's okay. And there's, there's aspects where we can even 
uh, be in unity with other churches that see and do things differently. So there's aspects of that. But when it comes to our weekly worship and our membership and how we function as a church, it's helpful. It's helpful for our unity to define who we are and what we believe. The values that we have as a sovereign grace church, these things have been hard won. They've come through years of diligent study and discussions and seeking the Lord. These are the things to the best of our understanding that we believe the scriptures are teaching and they form the values for us and shape and define and unify us in our mission together as a local church. I hope that throughout the series it will become clear why we hold these convictions and why we work to uphold them and to live them out. Now the first we're going to talk about today, the first of the shared value is Reformed theology. Okay? As soon as I say Reformed theology, I do not doubt that there are those in the room with a variety of responses. First, I don't know what that is. Second, I'm not sure I really care what that is. I know what that is, and I don't really like what that is, and I love and cherish the doctrines of grace and Reformed theology. I don't doubt there's a variety of responses, things going on in your heart and mind as I say that phrase. So I want to give a bit of an introduction. I'm studying this this week, and I'm just like, oh man, we could spend the whole year, the whole year, every Sunday, and then some talking about this. So what do I do in 40 minutes uh, with this vast, wonderful subject? Well, you'll, you're going to find out. Here's what it is. There are a couple things that we hope that this will produce in all of our hearts to talk about reformed theology. There's, there's two things really on my heart and on my mind that I hope it produces, that has produced in my heart. First, that we'd be convinced that the most important and the highest end of all things is for the praise of God's glorious grace. Okay, so on the sheet of paper of life and reality, that at the very top of the page, the highest, the most important thing, I'd like to reread the verse that opened our meeting that was used for our call to worship from Ephesians chapter 1 that it says this, explicitly blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There's something at the top of the sheet in all of our hearts. There's something that is most important that needs to be preserved. What we understand from the scripture is that what is at the top of the page is that all things be to the praise of his glorious grace grace and everything in life is subservient to that heading the second thing 
goal, objective, which I would hope is formed in your heart is that every one of us would continually be and forever be amazed that God saved us. That we would simply live in a state of amazement that God actually reached into our lives and rescued us and made us part of his family. I would hope that everyone who visits, who meets you or me, interacts with us, comes to your community group, sits in a Sunday meeting, would at the very least look around and pick up in the sense of the room. Now, those people at Sovereign Grace Church are amazed that they're Christians. That heart, that amazement, it, it, it gets expressed through humility, through joy, through worship. So how we sing together, our demeanor, our countenance, how we treat one another, all these things are, are meant to emerge from this idea that, I'm going to just use an idiomatic phrase, I can't believe it. Okay, not literally, you have to believe it. But idiomatically, I can't believe it. I can't believe God did this for me. I can't believe he saved me. I can't believe the Father sent the Son. I can't believe Jesus died. I can't believe that I would be the recipient of all this grace. I can't believe that the goodness of God would be poured out so extravagantly into my life. Like what we just read in Ephesians chapter 1. Can't believe it. In other words, I'm amazed. And it's not, I used to be amazed, I'm still amazed. And I will forever be amazed at what God has done. Okay, Reformed theology as, is first and foremost a theology. Okay, so before we talk about reform, let's talk about it being a theology R.C. Sproul makes a wonderful introduction to this concept by making this point and making this contrast. A theology versus a religion. So theology means you're studying God, who God is. You're thinking about God. It is the study of God. Sproul makes the contrast. If you're going to study religion, what you're doing is you're actually studying a particular kind of human behavior. What do we do? It's kind of our view of religion. What are we supposed to do to be religious? And he contrasts these two things, which is very important. David Wells wrote a book uh, a while back, and in it he talked about the shift to the self as a central focus of faith. In other words, when we think about God, our starting point is a focus on ourselves understandably makes perfectly good sense to me in fact i would ask how could it be otherwise we're human beings we're just people we think about ourselves all the time as i'm going to think about god it starts with okay me who am i and my problems and my needs and my desires and then i find a way to approach god you see how that falls under the heading of a religious approach a religion. And so what we want to emphasize here is a 
theology that we start with God, not with ourselves. In fact, we learn and know ourselves through the lens of knowing who God is, the study of God. So understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're not important or your problems are not significant or we don't care or we don't want to talk about the practical needs that you have in your life. What we're saying is first and foremost, what we want to do is begin with a view of who God is. Now, let me give you an example. Let's say you or I are struggling with fear and anxiety. You're struggling in your heart with fear and anxiety. And maybe you're so inclined to call up one of the pastors and say, I'm struggling with fear and anxiety. So, okay, no problem. Let me go do a little look through my Bible and I'll get back in touch with you. And I find some verses that say, do not fear. I said, well, look, don't even bother coming in. We don't need to talk. I'll just text you the answer. Do not fear. Okay, you're afraid? Here's the answer. Do not fear. How are you doing? Are you fixed yet? Is it all well uh, with your soul? No more fear, just like that? Just don't fear? We all know how impossible and how difficult and how that comes short of really addressing the state of our soul. But if we started with a theology, and I want you to think first and foremost about who God is. It's not that we're not going to talk about fear or anxiety, but first and foremost, I want you to think about who God is. And then you start asking questions. Who was it who said, do not be afraid? Oh, it was God who said to us, when we are afraid, do not be afraid. God, the Almighty, the All-Powerful, the Creator of all things, who set his affection on his people and rescued them and called them and saved them and promised them a future and a hope and an inheritance. And this God, that in our theology we study who he is, he's the one who said, do not be afraid because I am with you. So do you begin to see if you start with theology and you start thinking about who God is, this might sound like, a, a, like we're trying to skirt whatever issue or problem you might have. Like, just go study about God. That's not really the point is to avoid what's going on in your heart. The point is you will only rightly be able to view and understand your own soul and your own heart and the remedy and the pathway forward by and through studying and knowing who God is. It changes everything. Changes everything. So if you could grasp and imagine the benefit of, oh, I've got all kinds of problems in life. I say, would you study the character of God? Let's start by studying the character of God and who God is. You start building in your soul a correct theology of who God is. You become equipped with what is needed in the trials of our souls. That's why we value this. That's why we start with this. We do believe that ultimately 
having a right theology and knowing who God is and making a priority of knowing who God is is really ultimately going to be for yours and my greatest holiness and happiness. It's a theology, not a religion. Reformed theology is one of three ways of understanding how God's salvation is set forth to humanity through Christ. Okay? There is universalism. Universalism would say that Christ died for all and eventually all will be saved. Some years ago, Rob Bell came out with a book that hit the charts called Love Wins. It was a universalistic approach saying, don't worry, eventually everybody will be saved. Okay? Um, that philosophy, that idea has never really taken hold in the Orthodox Church. It's not biblical. It's not sound. It's very sentimentally appealing and is a wonderful sentiment which causes people to be inclined to think, wouldn't that be nice? But the Bible doesn't support it. There's no basis to go towards a universalistic view. The second is Arminianism. This is saying that Christ died equally and indiscriminately for every individual, for those who perish and for those who are saved. Okay? Saving grace is offered to everyone, and the determining factor lies with each person. Divine grace and human will jointly accomplish regeneration. A lot of people believe that. A lot of people hold to that view. The third view is a Reformed view. Reformed view, sometimes called Calvinism, but please don't get distracted by that title. In fact, Ian Murray, writing of Spurgeon, talking about Calvinism, he says his use of the word Calvinism did not mean that he used the name of the 16th century reformer as though it was a standard for truth. The label was simply intended to designate that glorious system which teaches that salvation is of grace from first to last. So we're not here to hold up a, a, a title or a, a heading, a description kind of a thing. What we're trying to get at is what does the Bible really teach about how God's grace comes and is apprehended in the lives of people. I give you a kind of a technical quote from Lorraine Bettner. This is kind of one of the classic uh, books about these doctrines and explains it this way. Calvinism holds that as a result of the fall into sin, all men are in themselves guilty corrupted, hopelessly lost. That from this fallen mass, God sovereignly elects some to salvation through Christ while passing by others. That Christ is sent to redeem his people by a purely substitutionary atonement that the Holy Spirit efficaciously applies, effectively applies this redemption to the elect that all of the elect are infallibly brought to salvation. Bentner goes on to write, Calvinism holds that the fall left man totally unable to do anything meriting salvation, that he is wholly dependent on divine grace for the inception and development of spiritual life. 
this grasped the essence of Reformed theology. There's a reason why this is on our list of values. We believe that this is the overall message that comes through the scriptures, that as you read the Bible from beginning to end, there is a message that emerges, that lines up with these doctrines, that really lay out these doctrines. The Bible is claiming that salvation belongs to the Lord and that he does all things, and especially saving people for himself for the praise of his own glory. There it is, highest thing on the page. Why does God do what he does? Why are we gathered here? Why are we saved? How is it possible that we would know the Lord? Why did God bring it about? Oh, yes, for your happiness. Yes, for your holiness. Top of the page to the praise of his glorious grace. And all things, all things will eventually lead to that end. Every observer, every person alive will be unmistakably drawn to that conclusion. Everything that took place, took place to the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, ultimately, it's about God. It is about us but it's not ultimately about us. First and foremost, about him. So, I want to take just a quick, brief tour through some scriptures today. I'm hoping to simply spark your hearts and minds to look to the scriptures with this idea in mind and see if maybe your experience is something like George Mueller's. Let me read you a couple paragraphs about his experience. George Mueller, uh, famous for his faith, uh, starting all kinds of orphanages, feeding thousands of children as a man of faith, trusting the Lord, a great man in the history of the church, he writes this. Before this period, I had been much opposed to the doctrines of election, particular redemption, and final preserving grace. But now I was brought to examine these precious truths by the word of God, being made willing to have no glory of my own in the conversion of sinners, but to consider myself merely an instrument. And being made willing to receive what the scripture said, I went to the word, reading the New Testament from the beginning with a particular reference to these truths. To my great astonishment, I found that the passages which speak decidedly for election and persevering grace were about four times as many as those which speak apparently against these truths. And even those few shortly after when I had examined and understood them served to confirm me in the above doctrines. As to the effect which my belief in these doctrines had on me, I am constrained to state for God's glory that though I am still exceedingly weak and by no means so dead to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life as I might be and as I ought to be, yet by the grace of God I have walked more closely with him since that period. My life has not been so variable 
And I may say that I have lived much more for God than before. I hope that that would be your experience. I was not brought into the faith in a Reformed theological context. I spent maybe the first 15 years of my Christian life in an Armenian context. And I have a lot to be grateful for for that season of my life, but I, I will never forget coming in to a, a Reformed understanding and reading the Reformers for the first time and openly considering, is this true and what does the Scripture really teach? And I remember the change in my own soul. And it was, in one sense, very dramatic. In another sense, it was just a small little shift from here to there. And I looked back, and I would have, evaluated my Christian walk and said there was something about the past 15 years that was man-centered. And all of a sudden, something shifted, and it became God-centered. It became more about God than it did about me. What I experienced in the first 15 years, and not that I'm immune to those feelings uh, to this day, but was always a low-grade guilt. I didn't do quite enough. I didn't pray enough. I didn't fast enough. I didn't seek God enough. There was, there was a sort of undercurrent, low-lying sense of what about me? And what am I, what is my behavior? What is my religion? What am I doing for God? And it was, in a sense, like my mind, my heart, my eyes were opened, and I read through the Bible, and all of a sudden, Verses that I had read a hundred times before spoke with new meaning. And I began to see through a lens that was centered on who God is, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that he saves people, that he really is the one with the free will, ultimately. And he saves who he pleases, and he saved me, and, and it, it, it set me free in so many ways. I hope the same is true for you. God's sovereign grace. Let's do just a quick little journey through the scripture. The storyline of redemption began with Abraham, and God speaks about choosing Abraham. Joshua 24 says, Joshua saying to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Point being, from the very beginning, it was God stepping in to an ungodly context, finding an ungodly man who worshipped pagan gods and, and, and idols and stepped into his life and called him, rescued him, pulled him, took him, took him. That's what it says. And said, now you're going to be the man. I'm going to begin something with you. Abraham wasn't necessarily a great guy, nice guy. Abraham was not wandering around looking for God, trying to figure out who is the true God anyway. He was just a pagan worshiper like everybody else in that nation, in that place where he was. And God interrupted his life. He makes a promise to Abraham to have a son. Abraham has two sons. But the blessing of God, the promise of God, 
was to one and not the other. The miraculous child. In fact, you read the story. God went to great lengths to make sure that Abraham and Sarah were so old, you would laugh at the idea. In fact, they both did laugh at the idea of having children. Here comes God creating a story that shows how impossible it is for the human effort to resolve the issue and bring about the blessing of God. The miracle boy arrives. They're 100 years old. She has a baby. And there's the blessing of God. There's the work of God. Okay? The case is being built. Human inability. The unlikeliness of God's grace coming into somebody's life. All of us equal, equally undeserving. Isaac, Abraham's son, has two sons, twins. Born moments apart. Romans 9 describes this. Also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might continue. Did you hear that phrase? He did this in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called. Okay, my hope is your view of God keeps inching up. Your view of yourself keeps coming into focus in light of who God is. The nation of Israel is formed, Deuteronomy 14. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 4. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Lord called you out. The Lord chose you. Know this. Lay it to heart. There's no one like our God. He is great to save. He's full of grace and power. And notice, because I loved. A verse in Ephesians. This is the explanation we get. Oh, friends, I appreciate the difficulty of this doctrine. I know the questions that many of them I'm unable to answer. There are secret things. There are deep things. I, I get the challenge of this. Nevertheless, we hold to it because the scriptures are teaching this unashamedly, not hiding it, leaving some questions unanswered. But the explanation we get is simply this. Because the love of the Father, because he loved, he set his affection, set his love, decided, chose you, I'm going to love you. And then he makes these extravagant, eternal promises, regardless of how you respond, regardless of how weak, 
regardless of inability, the promise of God lands there. We make our way into the New Testament. Now the people of God are reconstituted as the church, and God's grace is being sent, spread out to all peoples, the Gentiles, non-Jews, beyond Israel. The doors of God's grace are flung open to all the nations. In Romans 11, Paul writes about even the, the hardening of the hearts of Israel in order to let the full Gentiles come on in. Okay, just going to harden your heart for a time. Going to shut this part down for a time because we're going to fling the doors open and this message of the gospel is going to go to everybody on the planet. And the invitation is universal. Come on in. Jesus spoke about God's election. Let me read you some of the statements that Jesus made. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Not the other way around. You are not among my sheep because you won't believe. It'll be a standard understanding for many a Christian, and yet Jesus says the opposite. You're not one of my sheep. That's why you don't believe. You are not one of my sheep, therefore you don't believe. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. My Father's given them to me. He's greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Okay, one of the benefits in this doctrine is your security, your hope. I don't know how much of your security in the Lord is resting on your good behavior, your consistent behavior, your Bible reading plan, your church attendance record, your giving record. I don't know what might be on your list that is causing either comfort or consternation in your soul about what your behavior is like. And this doctrine of election steps in and says, God gave you to Jesus. Jesus calls you and he says, there's no one that can snatch you out of my hand. The promise and integrity of God has sealed you in his kingdom. Jesus, his prayer in John 17, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that i should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day 
I wrestled a little bit getting ready. It's like, I, I, I know I'm offending some with what I'm saying. I anticipated that. And then I thought, and I'm reading these words of Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've read the things that Jesus said, and you think, Jesus, you know, you, you could have been a little smarter. You, you, you could have not said that. You know, you really got yourself into, in, into some trouble by saying what you said. And, and it just, I realized again how free Jesus was to speak these things to the people that were listening to him. And if it's wise for Jesus, it's wise for us. It's good. Now notice, none of these statements, this doctrine of election, none of this stopped Jesus from preaching to the multitudes. None of this stopped Jesus from healing everyone who came to him with diseases and needs. He healed several times. The gospel writers, he healed them all. He preached to them all. Now, we know not all of them were his followers. Nevertheless, so this idea of election did not stop Jesus from evangelizing and healing and talking to and appealing to the multitudes. Come, repent. None of this doctrinal truth here stopped Jesus from weeping over Jerusalem at their rejection of him. Still filled with compassion for those who turned away. You might think this doctrine is this cold, academic, oh, they're, they're just not Christians, they're not my sheep, they're not, okay, done, we're done with what, why bother? It's like, no, not at all how Jesus responds. Still weeping, seeing the people rejecting his message, Departing, walking away, and his heart aches and longs for the lost. There is a desire in the heart of God that all would come to repentance. There is no pleasure in God in the destruction of the wicked. Nevertheless, we're not universalist. So therefore, there must be some higher, greater principle at work as to why God does not save everyone. It is his choosing. And it is and will be ultimately to the praise of his glorious grace. It didn't stop Jesus from preaching, caring for, the multitudes, and it should not stop us or slow us down in our effort of telling others about the grace of God. It is a silly and strange hyper-Calvinism that goes around trying to label people of who's called and who's not. This is by far a secret thing. If you think you know, you don't know. If I think I know, I don't know. What are we called to? We are called to bring into this world a universal appeal of the gospel. Come to him. All of you, anyone who's burdened down, who's heavy laden, come find your rest in him. The appeal, the message goes to 
everyone. If at any point our doctrine contradicts or stops us from obeying what the Scripture and the commission is calling us to do, we've got it wrong. Either our doctrine is wrong or our application of it is wrong, our conclusions about it are wrong, something is not right. We know some will receive and some will reject. This is the reality from our study through the book of Acts. It's the reality in each of our lives to this day. Nevertheless, we go and we rejoice for everyone who does respond. And we mourn over everyone who rejects. And there are several of us sitting in the room that have rejected many a time. And yet here you are. Imagine that. And so we keep telling and we keep appealing and we keep presenting and we keep praying and we keep trusting. And we leave the secret things, the hidden things to the Lord. He alone, he alone knows. We hope there's a desire in our heart as well that everyone would come to repentance. Everyone we meet would know the Lord and know the peace of God in their soul. In the end, we place our trust in God's sovereign grace. And for those of us who have the Spirit in our hearts, sitting here in this room this morning, we're left with nothing but amazement that God would save us. Just amazed. We were all equally undeserving of God's favor, grace, and kindness. Maybe we weren't all equally as bad. I'm sure I was worse than some of you. I know for a fact I was. All of us in the room equally undeserving. Therefore, all of us should be equally amazed at what the Lord has done. I realize it's challenging. I know some of you love this. Some of you don't. Not so much. Not yet. They let me in this church before I was reformed, and I'm glad they did. I'm glad what the Lord did in my heart and in my life, too. There's a wonderful beauty in the glory of God's grace for us to behold. Does it crush our pride? Yes, it does. Is it frustrating sometimes to have difficult questions that we can't quite articulate answers to? That's difficult. That's difficult. But could I challenge, encourage us all to read through the scriptures okay it's january how's your bible reading plan you got a new bible reading plan yet for the year what about reading the bible with these questions in mind with these concepts in mind what if we did what george Mueller did so i didn't i didn't like these doctrines in the past but i went into god's word and said what what does it really say is there really a case to be made that salvation belongs to the Lord entirely and that for any one of us to be saved, it is from grace. It is all of grace from first to last. I would encourage you 
to pursue that because I think there's a wonderful joy, a wonderful amazement, a wonderful peace, a wonderful security that would come. Worship team, you can come on up. I'm about finished. I would hope that you would read Ephesians chapter 1. Those verses that we've read a couple times today. And that you would become convinced. As much as we are naturally consumed with our lives and ourselves. And I get it. And being concerned about ourselves is certainly not a wrong thing. But to think first theologically. First and foremost, who is God? And to realize ultimately at the top of the list for the praise of his glory. And then my hope and prayer, regardless of what doctrines you're willing to sign off on and agree to, but that every one of us would truly, truly be amazed that God's grace came into our lives. Because that was a work that only God can do. And we couldn't bring it about by ourselves. Let's stand together as we close.